Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the COVID-19, but it means this week conference call. I would like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Thanks, Marie, and welcome, everyone, to BMO Finance Group's official COVID-19 conference call for the week of May 11th. On today's call, we have Dr. John White, as usual, Chief Medical Officer from WebMD, followed by three subject matter experts here at BMO Financial Group. First off, uh, Mr. Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist for BMO Capital Markets. Uh, also, Janelle Woodward's joining us today, Head of Fixed Income for BMO Global Asset Management, and myself, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We'll layer in some additional equity thoughts from, with respect to the U.S. and Canadian stock markets. We've also received a number of questions uh, from clients and uh, listeners, and we will be reviewing those questions um, following formal comments from our panel today. As we get started, a reminder that I point you toward our BMO disclosures via the web link and close at the bottom of the invitation that you received uh, prior to dialing into this call. And, of course, given that we're talking about sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, uh, to please directly consult your physician and or healthcare professional. Now, Dr. John White is joining us once again today. has been a wonderful resource to all of BMO Financial Group for the past several weeks. Well, we've all been dealing and uh, trying to analyze this crisis. He's a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the chief medical officer at WebMD, as previously mentioned. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the director of professional affairs and stakeholder engagement for the Center of Drug Evaluation and research at the U.S. FDA. Now, Dr. White currently sees patients in the Maryland and D.C. area, so he is a frontline worker working for all of us and fighting against this virus. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Dr. White. Dr. White, go ahead. Thank you, Brian, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to start off with uh, statistics and then think about what's the latest news that we've been hearing. So worldwide, there's over 4 million cases, as many of you know, with 282,000 deaths. In Canada, it's 68,800 cases with nearly 5,000 deaths. In the United States, it's 1. nearly 4 million cases and over 80,000 deaths. But something to keep in mind in terms of the number of cases, there's five states that account for over 60% of all cases and deaths, and those are New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California. And that's important to keep in mind as we talk about reopening. There are new projections um, that there may be more than 130,000 total COVID deaths in the United States by early August. And I, I want to point out that that number has nearly doubled in less than a week. So if you asked me a week ago, I would have told you it was 60, 65,000. But uh, IHME, which does a lot of the modeling, has changed their numbers based 
on the fact that states in the United States are relaxing the restrictions. But I also want to point out to you, and you can look at the data yourself at healthdata.org, that this really is a moving target, that the numbers are being changed, if not on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. And that is causing some concerns for transparency because there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty in this modeling. When the news media reports it, it's often reported as, you know, this is the actual number and what it's going to be. So it's important to keep that in mind. In terms of the latest news, you might have seen that FDA authorized a saliva test from Rutgers University Labs. They actually received an amended emergency use authorization on Thursday. They had received one for the saliva test, but you would still have to go to a medical professional to collect it. Now you can collect your own saliva at home and send it to the lab for results. And it has roughly the same accuracy as a nasal swab. And and that's important to keep in mind because that might be simpler to do. And it's also a trend. I want to talk about trends today that I think we're going to start to see in terms of DIY, almost do-it-yourself home testing um, for COVID. And the FDA also granted the first emergency use authorization to a diagnostic company called Quidel for the first COVID-19 antigen test, uh, not antibody test, but an antigen test, which can quickly detect coronavirus through a different strategy. The challenge is it's less accurate than some other types of tests. But the antigen test really is similar to a rapid flu or strep test run in a lab or a doctor's office, and it takes about 15 minutes. So that's going to be important as we think about how do we ramp up testing. Because the other testing, as you may know, really was done through what's called PCR, which looks for genetic sequence. And, and the antigen test, without giving an immunology lesson, is looking for molecules on the surface of the virus. So they return the results much more quickly, but they're less accurate. So if the test says a patient sample is positive, it's actually likely to be correct. So a positive test is likely to be correct, but the challenge is it has a high rate of false negatives, and and that's the concern. But we also have to recognize that, that this is innovation. This is iteration. We had none of these tests in January, and here we are in May with numerous tests out on the market. And testing really is going to continue to be critically important in containment and mitigation strategies. And it plays a key role in states reopening and staying open. We do know that states aren't testing enough of the population. We see that actually around the world because if you have a high positivity rate, meaning the number of people that you're testing, a high percentage, more than 10%, you're really just treating those patients that are severely symptomatic. We need to test a broader patient population to gain insights about the spread. And then real quickly on antibody testing, I get asked about that all the time. Roche did announce a test that's 100% sensitive and over 99% specific. And these are high numbers, and these are the numbers that we want to see when you're looking at a test because you want to avoid false positives as well as false negatives. The point of care tests, which are those pinprick tests, are much lower. So I do want to point out, if you keep this in mind, when people hear 95% sounds high or 90% sounds high, it's not high when you're going to be testing millions of people 
because you're going to get tens of thousands of false results. So we really need to look at tests that are over 99% sensitivity and specificity. And the FDA did announce a week and a half ago that they're going to crack down on some of these point-of-care testing that came to market under an emergency use authorization. And what the FDA had allowed was you could actually come to market without actually even providing data on your accuracy. Now you need to go back to the process where you submit your data, and then you can go to market. But we're going to see much more innovation on testing. And we also have to acknowledge that the pandemic is going to have a lasting impact on healthcare system in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, really around the world. And I wanted to just talk a few minutes about how that likely is going to persist beyond COVID-19. So as Brian mentioned, I, I still see patients. I'm doing much of it through telemedicine, through Kaiser Permanente. And there really has been this huge uptake in terms of telemedicine. But there actually overall has still been a 75% reduction in the number of patient physical visits. In the United States, there's over 100 million visits to a physician per month. And we do know that telemedicine has skyrocketed. But remember, it's very small, single digits uh, for most places to begin with. And the total number of visits has only been partially offset by telemedicine visits. It, it probably is only returning about 20% of that 100 million of monthly patient consultations. And in telemedicine, we're really seeing uptake in psychiatry, in allergy, and immunology, in internal medicine. Again, it's only making up a fraction of the average monthly visits seen prior to COVID-19. So how are we going to adjust for that when people are going to start returning to, to see their doctor returning to the hospital? Lab tests have decreased by 90%. I bet no one on the phone has had any non-COVID lab draw recently. And that impacts patient management. It may not seem on the surface is that that important, but it sure is in terms of managing diabetes, high cholesterol, our renal, kidney function. We're going to see the effects of this lack of testing and this lack of monitoring months from now. Prescription drug utilization. What's interesting, if you asked me in March, I would have told you that there were nearly 50 million more prescriptions for chronic conditions. What we saw that patients were stockpiling up, which made sense. You're not going to be able to go out. What if there is decrease in manufacturing? We really started to get those 90-day refills instead of those 30-day refills that often happens in the United States as, as you go to a pharmacy um, that your insurer doesn't want you to go to. But to look at it more closely, new prescriptions, those branded prescriptions, or even just you know a, a new medication to manage, say, high blood pressure, is down nearly 10 million. So what conditions aren't being diagnosed or what poorly treated conditions aren't being modified? We're going to see those results soon. The other big issue that I've talked before is about cancer screening. Mammography, pap smears are down 80%. Colonoscopies are down 90%. PSA screening is down 60%. There's estimates by the American Cancer Society that this is going to translate into 80,000 fewer cancer diagnoses for patients. So as we start to reopen, particularly the healthcare system, will we have the capacity to catch up on this test, delayed elective surgery, you know, ramping up cancer treatments? Are we going to work on Saturdays? Are we going to work on Sundays? How do we get those nurses and other health professionals who've been furloughed in some health systems? Will they come back? 
And then in, in treatments, real, you know, quickly, because I, I talk about that a lot, there really is this surge of activity underway. And that's great. There's over 180 drugs in trials. There's another 90 uh, drugs that aren't in trials but are in preclinical testing. But we're starting to see, you may have seen this weekend, COVID-19 might be treated more like HIV, where it's triple therapy, quadruple therapy, and not just one drug as we typically would treat a virus or an infection. That's where we're starting to see some movement, combined therapy. And as you know, at least 50 vaccines are in discovery or, or preclinical stages. And the FDA recently announced that a, a vaccine is going to phase two testing, uh, a company named Moderna, Moderna uh, and, and they started in March. So this is rapid progress. WHO has also announced eight potential vaccines for COVID. I've been a big proponent, as many of you know, saying I think we need to take a realistic approach to the development of vaccines. And Johnson & Johnson announced this weekend that they're going to have the capacity to make millions of vaccines if we need it. But here's the issue that we need to think about. We're talking about a hypothetical vaccine. We don't actually have a vaccine right now. And ultimately, we do need to produce millions, billions perhaps of doses. And companies usually build new facilities tailored for any given vaccine because they have different requirements. So, yes, we are making tremendous progress and moving at a fast speed. But let's use history as our guide in terms of where we have had progress before. In terms of reopening, um, the Prime Minister in Canada has announced, even as of Saturday, that if provinces move too quickly to reopen their economies, the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic could send Canada back into confinement this summer. And, and that's a big concern. In the United States, despite recommendations of two weeks of continuous decline for various matrices, states are starting to relax their stay-at-home orders, um, and we are likely to see more cases. That's partly because there's more testing, but we really want to examine the severity of those cases, how many people are going to hospital, how many deaths are there. So we need to look at that closely because I also think there is a fatigue growing uh, with these stay-at-home orders, the concern about their economic uh, viability and able to be providing for their family. And this is what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. What are the guidelines in terms of returning to work? And all too often, we don't have good direction in terms of what needs to be done in the workplace to keep people safe. I do have a lot of optimism in terms of where we are today versus where we are on, where we were on March 9th. We're seeing a decrease in rate of hospitalizations, a decrease in the rate of deaths. We're better prepared in terms of surge capacity, in terms of protective equipment. We're much further along on where we are in um, treatment, therapeutic options in terms of trials. And we're going to have iterative process in, in terms of testing, as well as an iterative process in terms of the opening. We're going to see more of a surgical approach. I said that before than a scalpel approach. Instead of shutting down a whole state, I think we'll see things shut down in regions um, to contain a virus and to keep those that are most at risk protected, while at the same time figuring out a process of how do we live with the virus. And I'd be happy to answer questions. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to Brian. 
Thanks a lot, Dr. White. Uh, we're going to move on to our subject matter experts here at BMO Financial Group. And leading us off is Mr. Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist for BMO Financial Group. Michael? Hi, Brian. Hello, everybody. Well, T.S. Eliot said April is the cruelest month. And when it comes to the economy, this uh, famous phrase, it fits perfectly. The stay-at-home orders and business closures that unfolded during March had their full impacts last month and the April indicators are now starting to be released. On Friday, we got the U.S. and Canadian employment reports, and the results were, quite frankly, awful. Uh, U.S. payroll jobs plummeted by 20.5 million in April after dropping by 870,000 in March. Household survey employment, which picks up the self-employed and thus lots of uh, gig workers, plummeted an even larger 22.4 million after falling by 3 million. The past two months have now wiped out the past two decades of job gains in America. April's job losses caused the unemployment rate to spike more than 10 percentage points, the 14.7%, the highest since monthly figures started in 1948, and thus marking the highest jobless rate since the Great Depression era. It's hard to believe that the U.S. unemployment rate was running at five-decade lows of 3.5% as recently as February. Now, Canadian employment uh, plummeted by 2 million in April after dropping by 1 million in March. Now, the market was bracing for a much larger decline. Uh, those expectations were heavily influenced by the fact that more than 7 million Canadians were receiving payments under the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. The unemployment rate shot up 5.2 percentage points, less than in the U.S., to 13%, which was just shy of the post-war high of 13.1% hit in 1982. It's interesting, though, that the two-month job losses account for 15.7% of Canada's pre-pandemic workforce, which is in line with the 16% worth of two-month job losses in the U.S. And despite spiking, Canada's jobless rate still fared a bit better than in the U.S., partly because of the 3.7 percentage point plunge in the uh, uh, participation rate to 59.8%, as more than 1 million Canadians dropped out of the labor force. In contrast, the U.S. participation rate fell a more muted 2.5 percentage points to 60.2%, uh, and this is the first time since 2002 that the U.S. part rate is higher than in Canada, and it likely reflects the fact that we've had stronger uh, income support measures north of the border. For both labor markets, April might not mark the nadir. The survey period for both May employment reports is this week. In the U.S., in the two weeks since the April survey period, initial claims for unemployment insurance benefits are already up another 7 million on top of the 26.5 million over the previous five weeks. That said, with state and provincial economies starting to reopen and lots of laid off workers and furloughed workers are now starting to get their jobs back. However, with the reopenings mostly being phased in and occurring at different paces across different jurisdictions, it's likely that May will mark another month of net job losses and further increases in unemployment rates, but nowhere near as bad as April. A question we get asked often is, will the economy recoup all of the jobs lost because of the pandemic, or will some of the job losses be permanent instead of temporary? We judge that be, uh, beyond the next few months, uh, meaningful labor market progress, in fact, may be a lot harder to come by. With respect to recovering pandemic-related job and output losses, some industries will likely lag well behind, 
hampered by the phased-in reopenings along with lingering social and physical distancing rules. Some businesses, particularly those saddled with more debt and not completely recovered sales, might take the occasion to permanently pair personnel to drive cost savings. Others might succumb to insolvency and simply go out of business. Meanwhile, business confidence broadly, which is a key driver of both CapEx and hiring, may take time to adequately recover in the absence of a vaccine or should the virus flare up again. It's interesting that in his recent press conference, uh, Fed Chair Powell said for the first time that the pandemic, and I quote, poses considerable risks to the economic outlook over the medium term, unquote. What he had in mind were the factors I just mentioned that could prevent employment and jobless rates from returning to their pre-pandemic levels for a long while. We do expect the summer months to display very, very strong labor market outcomes. But as we head into the autumn, we expect the improvements might become much less impressive. The bottom line is that some job losses will be permanent, and it may take many years to revisit the pre-pandemic lows in jobless rates. And with that, I'll uh, turn things over to my colleague, Janelle Woodward. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to spend a few minutes and, and speak specifically to fixed income markets. Um, with each week that passes, we continue to see signs of market normalization. In terms of fixed income market function, even while significant uncertainty remains regarding the short and intermediate economic impact, as we just heard. Um, I want to spend a few minutes talking about what we see from a policy standpoint, uh, what the market's reaction has been, and then just, just finish on, on some opportunities that we continue to observe in the market. Um, to start, a, a really important driver of financial markets and certainly fixed income markets has been the global monetary policy action we've seen to date. Um, outside of traditional policy tools, which we typically consider to be rates, policy actions by, by major central banks has in large part come in the form of a lending facility with really two aims, one about supporting market function, and then the second about establishing and expanding credit facilities that can serve as a conduit to support the private sector, complementing what we're seeing from a fiscal policy standpoint. Um, I note the Fed in particular, it has really taken this whatever-it-takes tone with regard to policy, and, and we certainly heard this again at its meeting two weeks ago. Um, well, to date, as I mentioned, we started to see normalization. We continue to see this each week in terms of volatility, bid-ask spreads. I think the question that remains is what could and what does whatever it takes look like going forward, especially as rates sit at zero and, and the Fed's balance sheet could potentially push towards $10 trillion given the amount of facilities already in place. Uh, last week of note, U.S. rates were, were actually quite topical. Um, in fact, on Thursday, what we saw is we saw Fed funds futures began to price in a negative rate policy. Um, and I think this begs the question on whether or not this might be part of, of the Fed's toolkit going forward. The Fed's been very definitive to date that it will hold at the zero lower bound. Um, but there are two factors uh, that we think about as we think about what fundamentally could be different. 
Uh, when we've seen negative front-end rates in the past, it's largely been about market function. And so as we explore now in a more normalized market, we think it speaks to, one, a risk that there could be a W-shaped recovery and that it will be required that the Fed extends beyond uh, just expanding existing facilities and and visit zero, zero bond policy. And the second is really a recognition of the strength of the U.S. dollar in a global context and appreciating that U.S. rates remain positive while much of the developed uh, world benchmark rates are, are now negative. Interse- intersecting with this, as we think about uh, rates, uh, has really been supply. The other thing we know in the U.S. last week is we saw a steepening of the U.S. curve, um, specifically as as we heard that the U.S. 20-year issuance expected to come in May would be larger than expected. Um, when we look at Canadian rates, we've seen them on a year-to-date basis move lower in a coordinated uh, manner, although we do see uh, long-term rates have moved down a little bit less year-to-date versus the U.S., about 100 basis points versus 125 basis points on the 10-year. And we do see curves flatter, um, in our opinion, reflecting uh, the differences in QE and also some, some oil-related shocks. Looking at credit sectors, USIG credit, uh, the largest uh, IG credit market in, in globally, uh, continues to hug about 200 basis points, about half where we were in March. Uh, we have over the last month really seen IG credits underperform um, what we've seen across other risk assets. And the big theme really has been here supply. Uh, last week, U.S. supply in the IG space was at $90 billion for the week alone. Uh, we expect about two to $300 billion during the month of May. And year-to-date issuance has now exceeded $900 billion. Uh, to give this some context, record issuance in 2017 was just over $1. $1.3 trillion. So $900 billion through, through the month of May is certainly noteworthy. Um, year-to-date, Canadian corporate spreads have actually outperformed the U.S., um, but we've also seen some of cash lagging, uh, some of the derivative markets, uh, as we've seen the same the supply dynamics flow through that market as well. Elsewhere in spread markets, high yield and EM have lagged investment grade, but are also well off the wide. Uh, the big theme that we continue to see play out there is, is really oil. And then for emerging markets, the strength of the dollar uh, certainly is, is, is important as well in terms of their ability to recover. Uh, MBS, well, initially, mortgage-backed securities, well, initially had moved wider. Uh, last week, we saw the first weekly fund inflow since the first week of March, suggesting to us that the worst, worst outflows are probably in the rearview mirror. So, again, speaking to not – Fully back to where we saw valuations clearly in 2019, but the overall tone of markets continues to improve. Uh, fundamentally, first quarter, we've seen earnings uh, better than many fear, but still weak. I think consistent with what we heard previously, the expectation now is that 2Q will really be the important point uh, when we can assess what companies and how entities perform from a credit risk standpoint going forward. I saw a chart last week that reflected the use of unprecedented in-company disclosures, and the spike of that, I think, speaks to the overall tone. Uh, most importantly, has really been access to liquidity, and this is certainly what intersects with the supply we've seen on a year-to-date basis and certainly all over the last month. In terms of finding value, uh, we continue to look, especially with the recovery of valuations at defensive sectors of fixed income, favoring investment-grade corporates in particular, uh, where we can get a real rate of return, and we think you're still being compensated for both downgrade and default risk. And with that, uh, Brian, I'll turn it back over to you.
Thanks, Janelle, and uh, great having you on the call. Very value add, and great to hear your voice. Uh, before we move to questions, I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, what has transpired uh, in the United States and Canadian stock markets the last uh, couple of weeks. I think a lot of investors uh, might be missing the fact that uh, as of Friday, and even here today, uh, Canadian stock markets actually outperform um, their neighbor to uh, the South with the TSX uh, and local currency actually outperforming slightly the NASDAQ, but clearly the S&P 500 since, since the lows that we saw on March uh, 23rd. Uh, what's really interesting, too, that as earnings come out, we're about almost 70% of earnings have come out uh, this quarter for the TSX, and we are starting to see a very, very decent trend in terms of positive surprise to the upside, uh, a little bit more than analysts thought. And this is something that we talked about and warned investors that maybe analysts were maybe a little bit too negative coming into the quarter. And I think that's a, uh, a positive swing that we could see uh, for the quarters to come with respect to Canada. Clearly, Canada has had some volatility the last few months with what's happened with the, with the energy markets. But keep in mind that energy has been one of the best performing sectors uh, since the market trough in March. And it's an area that we have been telling people. Uh, to be overweight in their Canadian portfolio. So we, we maintain our overweight stance, by the way, in financials, communication services, uh, and energy in Canada. With respect to the U.S., uh, still a lot of questions with respect to growth. Michael talked a lot about in terms of GDP. And I think the major, the major fears and major trends right now is as we transition away from the fear of dealing, uh, with COVID in our everyday life, uh, from the human factor, now we're dealing with how we're going to open uh, up the economy and really where the growth is going to come from. You know, we continue to be overweight technology, communication services, consumer discretionary, and parts of REITs in the United States, REITs for value, communication services for not only value, but very strong growth in the cash flow perspective and earning stability sector side of things. I'm sorry, technology with respect to the more the consumer staple type of uh, uh, technology with respect to very strong balance sheets and strong cash flow and consistency of earnings. And then clearly on the consumer discretionary side, this is an area that is quite interesting because the best time to buy consumer discretionary is when you're heading into a, a recession. And our favorite theme within consumer discretionary remains lifestyle. There's been a lot of news over the last few weeks uh, in terms of some of these retail companies that have gone bankrupt. We'd just like to remind investors, some of these companies that, ha that have had issues in terms of bankruptcy and gone, ha had secular problems in terms of growth prior to COVID. And so obviously when the COVID and the coronavirus, uh, locked down in terms of the economy, these companies were going to get hit first. So investors, quite frankly, should not be surprised that we're seeing, uh, bankruptcies. Uh, of what we've seen so far with respect to uh, in the consumer discretionary sector. Lastly, we get a lot of questions from clients with respect to this notion of a retest. Uh, we, in terms of investment strategy, I believe that we're not going to get a perfect retest. I think uh, if we've learned one thing with respect to the markets um, this year, we've had unprecedented moves to both the downside, and we warned people that we would also see these to the upside as well, much to people's, I think, at some point chagrin, because I think they missed the rally, uh, but they've also been too negative, that I think nothing in, in life, let alone investing, is quote-unquote cute. If you try to be too cute and, and pick an area and time the market and expect a 
perfect pullback to the March lows, I think that could be, quote, unquote, a little too cute. And, again, we do not think that investors should be trying to time the market, and we still believe a year from now that stock prices will be higher. So with that, we're going to segue to the question format and part of the call here um, today. And we have received some questions from our clients who have called in for this. But in the meantime, I want to segue back to Dr. White and, and start off the question uh, with a two-part question on vaccines, um, <clears throat> Dr. White. Number one part of the question is, do you think that there's too much of a focus on wanting and needing a vaccine or expecting uh, a vaccine uh, by the fall? And then that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, how would you answer um, this question when posed by someone? I am not going to go back to work until there's a vaccine. I and mean, then I'm not going to go to a ball game and mm-hmm. a vaccine out there. How would you combat that? And then yeah. can you then layer into the other part of the question? Thank you. And, you know, I actually have heard that question <laughs> from employees at different places that they're not returning until there's a vaccine. And, and that's going to be a challenge. And I think people are fearful of um, getting coronavirus. The other aspect that we need to keep in mind, and Brian, you and I have talked about it, is we have to remember, despite what we hear in the media, 90 percent, 90 plus percent of persons that develop coronavirus clear from their systems at home without medical intervention. It doesn't mean that it's a walk in the park, but the overwhelming majority of cases of coronavirus are not fatal. What we do know is that it's more lethal in an elderly population and those with chronic conditions. So we need to keep that in mind. But I think many folks have tied this idea that because it's a novel virus, that until we get a uh, vaccine that we have to keep this lockdown or people are going to die. And we need to change this narrative that it's not an either or that we need to have a balance. We need to figure out a way to live with the virus while protecting vulnerable populations. And and there's different strategies to do that. I think the narrative is starting to change around a vaccine now that we're halfway through May, recognizing that vaccine development is tricky. It's wrought with failures as much of drug development is in general. So if we keep telling people that a vaccine might be available in the fall, and if you listen carefully, it's always stated as being for first responders in the medical community, it's not going to help people make informed decisions. And not every job can wait that long. So we have to push back and say, if a vaccine takes years to be developed, how are you going to function from a business perspective. Does that mean you'll never leave your home to do anything, not just the leisure activities of going to a ball game, but other types of social activities uh, as well? So I think it's something that we have to acknowledge up front that a vaccine may not be ready in the fall, that we have to stop tying uh, possibility of a vaccine with we have to have a complete lockdown until a vaccine is developed because that's not the case. And then I think we're going to have to help 
Um, employees and persons help make their own risk-based informed decision. So it does matter where you live based on your local infection rates, and it is based somewhat on your age and other comorbidities. But we're going to have to find a balance, Brian. It's not an all or none. And, and I think we're moving away from that narrative slowly, but we're starting to, to figure it out. That's great. Uh, thank you so much for, for those answers. And then I guess another follow-up question. Um, there's been so much talk about how we're going to open up these states and, and when states are going to open and how many states are going to open and the timing, all of that. So we haven't even opened some of these states, Dr. White, and now the rhetoric is, so what's going to happen? What's going to cause them to close again? And so right. what are the, are, are there two or three data points that we should be looking at or is it going to matter state by state in terms of location, location, location? And how would you answer that when, when posed the question is, what's going to cause states to close out again? Right. And I mentioned Canada is, is still taking a, a wait and see approach. And by Friday of this week, Almost every state, at least 47 states in the United States, will have some modified reopening plan. And I think what we'd like to see is that cases go down in terms of the daily case rate. Um, that's partly predicated by testing. So if you do a lot more testing, that can be a little misleading. So we really want to see the number of deaths and the number of hospitalizations decrease because those are the ones that are the most serious. But I'm going to be honest, Brian, I, I think in the United States there's really a fatigue of staying at home. And I think once the weather gets much better and states reopen to some degree, it's going to be very hard to do a big lockdown again. I think we would have lots of issues with compliance. So I think it's more around this testing and tracing approach. When you hear about a case, you're going to do contact tracing, whether it's by the old-fashioned way with public health professionals, which I think that's the way it's going, versus the use of tech in the United States with Apple and Google trying to get people to download an app. I think that's where we're, we're going to see. But the measures are going to be really the severity of cases in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Um that's going to impact whether a state recloses, but it's also going to be a modified approach. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to see the complete shutdown again. I just don't think um, folks can maintain their financial being, uh, keeping things locked down. And there's lots of aspects that determine our overall health. Thanks, Dr. White. I think we're segueing a question for Janelle Woodward before we go to questions from the crowd. And my question would be, um, and thank you so much again for joining us, you speak a little bit about investment grade credit, uh, and there's been so many questions with respect to the the cycle in terms of credit leading equities and credit really showing us the way. How would you answer the question with respect to looking at not only valuation of, of, of U.S. credit, but really segueing that into the valuation either disconnects or opportunities and take a look at global credit? And if we're seeing any kind of tie-in, I know you spoke a little bit about it, but could you dig a little bit deeper into what your view is on valuation with respect to investment-grade credit? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, you know, I think from a fundamental standpoint, I think the two most important themes here have been 
uh, liquidity and how that looks across sectors, subsectors, pockets of the market, which has been what's been so important about about new issue supply coming back. Um, but then also this intersection with what was the tone and overall credit risk going in. And you talked a little bit about secular decline. And so fundamentally, I think it's this liquidity plus overall sector trends that we continue to look at. Um, but the question we get asked is, and you're, you're right, is you know, what's the right price? So in the IG world, we saw 400 basis points in spreads in March, and we're back to 200. What's the right price? Um, especially as we look for some of these fundamental uh, trends to really flow through from an earnings standpoint. Um, the approach we've taken it is kind of threefold. Uh, one, thinking about credit risk premium in the context of prior cycles, what that looks like. In general, as we look back, typically when credit spreads get wide of 160 basis points, excess returns on a forward uh, basis tend to be positive. So sitting at 200 um, kind of gives good anchoring to the market. And then looking at other segments, high yield and emerging market debt and other spread sectors continue to price cheap to that. So that would be the first angle. Um, the second would be thinking about credit spreads from an implied default rate perspective and putting these in historical context. And this has been really helpful as we kind of intersect what our expectations are uh, for losses through the cycle, both in aggregate and then at different sectors or subsectors, whether we're looking at leisure or energy. Um, so that's been the second piece that allows us to observe what really is priced in. And we do think that implied default rate rates in a number of sectors uh, still remain too high. And then the last piece is cross-asset uh, class valuations. As you mentioned, uh, you know, what we see in the equity markets, and we have seen fixed income markets, uh, investment grade in particular lag in here. Um, and a lot of that is about the supply that's hit the market. And I think if we make a case that equities are cheap and kind of flow that through into other segments of fixed income, uh, it certainly makes a case that there's value to be had in, in segments, including high yield. Thanks, Janelle. That's wonderful. Uh, first question from the field comes from Bill Blackburn from Colliers International. I guess the two-part question are actually two-person question. First off, from Michael Gregory and myself, and I'll layer in as well. Bill's question is, will the cheap cost of borrowing prevent a widespread of foreclosures? And I think he means bankruptcies as well. Uh, will there be foreclosures to large caps? And what would you consider a safe debt-to-equity ratio? So I guess we'll start off on from uh, Michael Gregory's perspective from the economic side of things, and then I'll layer in from the stock side. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, sure thing, Brian. Well, I mean, obviously, the this little bridge financing and, and all this debt uh, is helping to forestall uh, uh, insolvency in a lot of companies, but uh, the uh, a lot won't make it, uh, um, and... Uh, the, particularly, I think of more a smaller firm variety. But on top of that, whether you're a small or a big firm, uh, particularly the bigger firms, you're going to be saddled with a lot of debt uh, that has to be managed uh, over time. And, and I think that this adds uh, like another acts like another headwind for for economic uh, performance uh, going down the road. Uh, the uh, you know I mentioned in my comments before about the uh, labor market not returning back to uh, where it was pre-pandemic, and you know that 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 will act as a bit of a, a damper on on sort of consumer confidence and, and big ticket spending by consumers more than it otherwise would have been. And and I, I think the same thing for businesses uh, with higher debt levels, it's going to be a lot harder you know uh to uh, to to manage and, uh, and it will act as a bit of a headwind on 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 capital spending and hiring and things like that so the debt does matter it it's it's going to save the save the day but it also comes at a price 
Thanks, Michael. That's a great way to put the debt does matter. And I, I think when you take a look at bankruptcies uh, and foreclosures uh, from the equity side, I'll go back to the, the comment that I made with respect to bankruptcies uh, in retail land and the consumer discretionary land. The companies that were in trouble before COVID are going to be in trouble after COVID just because of what has transpired. And I think there's been a lot of talk, and we've talked about this in the investment strategy side, both for Canada and the United States, in terms of cap size, your question Bill's question was really specifically surrounding large caps, and I know there's been a lot of talk uh, in terms of certain areas, whether or not it's a cruise line or an airline uh, going bankrupt or having problems, and clearly the retail side, but we've had um, some major issues from a fundamental perspective in terms of debt-to-equity ratios, but in terms of the small mid-cap area, even coming into uh, 2020, where we had near-record profits in equity land, but yet small caps have really lost their luster heading into 2020. So we're not calling for any kind of massive bankruptcies in a small mid-cap land. However, we do think that there are several longer-term secular trends that could actually benefit domestically oriented companies, both in Canada and the United States, to the tune of repatriation and or onshoring uh, as supply chains potentially uh, change going forward. So that may actually be a bit of a bid uh, in terms of helping companies restore some growth here uh, domestically uh, in North America that actually could cushion against some of that pressure. I think we'll go back to a question uh, for Dr. White, uh, if we could. And really, uh, from a hospital management and medical management perspective, uh, there's been a lot of talk about elective surgeries, elective uh, medical procedures coming back online. If there was one lesson that you would like uh to help kind of manage the hospital system going forward, what's the number one lesson you think we've learned uh, and how we've managed this massive shift to the crisis management in hospitals to now slowly, hopefully, kind of getting back into normalization yeah. with respect to hospital business as well? It's really bright about effective communication. If you think about it, we told patients, don't come to the hospital. Don't come. You know, Call your doctor. Call your public health department. And and that was good advice, but we should have had some caveats because what we saw is that, and what we're seeing is that patients who had heart attacks did not come. Patients who didn't, who had strokes, didn't come to the emergency room. And it still was safe for those patients to come. Many hospitals segregated patients with COVID from the rest of the hospital, including ER population, and separate entrances, separate procedures, separate equipment. And despite best efforts, we didn't communicate information well enough. Now we're saying to patients, we can think you can think about coming back to have your knee replacement, to have your cataract surgery. So now how are we telling them it's okay to come back, it's safe to come back? So the biggest lesson is effective communication consistent communication, in many ways, constant communication, keep updating them over time. I think we're going to make progress, but I've said many times, even though the virus may dissipate, fear of the virus isn't going to dissipate. And delayed care often causes harm. And we need to help patients understand that, that telehealth can't do everything. You're going to need to come back and see the doctor. And there are safeguards in place to make it uh, acceptable and minimize risk. And then we need to figure out how do we get excess capacity back 
to address when, you know, the majority of patients come back. It's a work in progress. Thank you, Dr. White, as usual. Great content today. And thank you, Janelle, for joining us and Michael Gregory as well. It's a great way to end today's call. For any additional questions, please contact your BMO relationship manager. And remember, those that have talked today uh, have been publishing regularly and do publish regularly for BMO Financial Group. So, again, reach out to your BMO relationship manager to see those reports or and or, I'm sorry, visit the webpage at bmocm.com uh, or listen to our COVID Insights podcast for the most recent and current updates. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to speaking with you again next week. Please stay safe and be well. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.